Welcome, my name is Eddie Arrieta. This is Fulfilling Work Life. We intend to talk to leaders, professionals, remoters, human beings from all around the world who share with us their knowledge. Join me in this daily journey. We had an amazing discussion with George Tilesh about the future of AI and how it's gonna impact work, how it's gonna impact our lives, and what are the things that we could do to prepare ourselves for that reality. You can also find his book Between Brains at betweenbrains.ai. Please enjoy this conversation. And we are like that officially live today with uh, Dr. Uh, George Tilesh. Thank you, George, so much for accepting our invitation today to talk about you know, your story, uh, where you have come from, uh, your book as well. Uh, and I know it's uh, already 7 p.m. Uh, where you are, but thank you so much for joining us. 7 a.m. <laughs> 7, 7 a.m. actually. Seven, oh, yes, you're Pacific. Yeah, you're in San Francisco. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much for joining us in this early morning uh, for you. Uh, How is everything uh, in terms of, you know, all of the context, of course, in the United States for you? And personally, me and my family are in, in a little bit of a, a sheltered environment uh, in the good sense of the word. So, um, so far, fortunately, we have been spared by both COVID and the, and the protests. But a few miles from here, there have been, um, you know, heavy clashes in the last few days. And, uh, and for obvious reasons, the, the population of California is, is a a little anxious so uh yeah this is a a time of uh, multiple layers of turmoil and multiple layers of crisis and uh, i think we are doing our best if we are trying to keep our heads above the water and also admitting our uncertainties and uh, frustrations um, honestly and openly yeah, that's 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 super super interesting on how that's completely playing out. And thank you so much for taking the time, uh, despite all of that, to talk to us today about you know where you've come from and and, and the things that you're doing to make to make this a better world. Uh, we we all hope. Uh, uh, and George, um, I I, I want to get started with with the the main idea of uh, artificial intelligence. A lot of um, uh, our viewers, those that listen to the podcast, those that watch these over LinkedIn and different places, probably have a lot of misconceptions of, around the terms of what artificial intelligence is. And full disclosure, this is not the first time we talk about this. Uh, George and I, I have had, had a previous uh, interview at, at the Startup Budapest Safari, which is already out there as well. You can also watch that interview. Um, but we did talk about that. Uh, what are the main misconceptions, or not, let's not talk about the misconceptions, what is your definition of artificial intelligence? I'm trying to go as simple as possible usually. And uh, I think that the simplest definition I tend to use is uh, artificial intelligence is defined as the ability of machines to think and learn. So uh, probably the shortest, <laughs> shortest and cutest definition. Um, it is also sometimes defined as the uh, the objective uh, to give machines the capabilities to replicate human cognitive capacity. And that's a much more complicated definition because replication itself can be can be a very hairy topic. You know, if you are putting on the lens of uh, an employer, 
you're approaching this uh, definition from the perspective of uh, replacing tasks that a certain worker can do, which can lead to you know, a very positive outcome of people having more time to do meaningful work and, and, and get rid of the, the processes they didn't like. And uh, in, a, in a negative environment, it could lead to massive layoffs and, and uh, you know, jobs being lost. So these are, I mean, I don't want to dive deep in the very beginning, but uh, what I wanted to demonstrate is that uh, there are many definitions that actually the, the audience should not be shy about that because uh, in one of my last uh, positions, uh, we had an AI strategy day organized at the company, a very big company, and the AI experts inside the company, about 40 of them have spent one month on an email chain to come up with a joint definition of artificial <laughs> intelligence. So those, those were the experts. So I'm, I'm not expecting uh, the same uh, efforts from people who are listening to a radio show. And, and this is very interesting because when you start thinking about those things, it, it, it really resonates with me with what's happening today with remote work. About six months ago, a year ago, even maybe three months ago, people would think of like remote workers and digital nomads as, oh, no, the weird ones, right? Like people talking about this crazy thing. Yeah, you have them on the side. They know what they are talking about, but you don't take them too seriously. And it's super interesting because it is, it does not totally the case with artificial intelligence. In fact, maybe a year ago, a year and a half ago, it was really hot. Like everyone was talking about artificial intelligence. And all of a sudden, it kind of like faded out a little bit. And it seems that there would be another wave where, where it becomes real. What do you think needs to happen? Or what do you think is going to happen for people to really feel artificial intelligence affecting their lives, like in, in the day-to-day? -day? Is that something that could potentially happen? That's an excellent question, Eddie, and actually one of the very much recurring ones in my work, uh, especially the ones I'm doing with the governments and, and think tanks, uh, basically around how to make artificial intelligence approachable and relevant to people. Uh, I'm involved in a number of uh, initiatives worldwide, uh, which are formulated as you know, national conversations or so social dialogues about the, the very difficult changes that, that uh, certain uh, lines of artificial intelligence will be, uh, will be bringing or are already bringing. And actually, that's one of the core statements in our book that, that much of it is already here or, 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 or uh, it is here to an extent that we can, we can forecast the next few years um, with relative ease, I would say. Of course, you know you cannot calculate pandemics and these kinds of things, but but uh, there are there are certain things where where you can where you can forecast the spread and deployment of artificial intelligence. So, <clears throat> I would say that we did a research last year, and the number of people who have heard about. Uh, the expression that is most commonly used in artificial intelligence today, the more graspable, the, the most prevalent wave is more machine learning. And 9% uh, of the population have heard the term of machine learning. Doesn't mean that they understand it, but they, they've heard it. So 
what I'm trying to say here is that I don't think we can reasonably expect the whole population to have a full technical understanding of what it is and, you know, understand deep learning and neural networks and these kinds of magic key stuff. Uh, but what we can expect and what we should expect is to, to organize social dialogues about the impact of certain artificial intelligence waves uh, the impact it has on jobs, the impact it has on transformation of industries, uh, disinformation, misinformation, impersonations of technologies, so the whole realm of uh, what's happening in social media, the impact of, on democratic institutions, how AI can put um, manipulation on steroids, both in the political and the commercial realm, uh, how, you know, even, even devices and software that is AI powered that we find very, very useful today uh, in B2C environments like uh, voice assistants on our phones and on our devices, how can they put us uh, to autopilot mode you know, in, the, in the near future as they become more and more sophisticated? Uh, you know, how, what do we decide as a society about data and privacy and the necessary trade-offs that, that COVID brought, like, you know, these uh, contact tracing and tracking apps that, that will be probably kind of mandatory to introduce uh, post-COVID. What are the trade-offs that society wants to bear? So the, so the bottom line when we, when we wrote the book was basically the effort to, to make sense of this artificial intelligence realm to a a broader population to, to uh, you know, intelligent people worldwide, educated people worldwide, who, who understand that they live in a digital environment, but may have said earlier that, you know, artificial intelligence is something like, I, that I, I don't understand, that is, uh, that is something mythical, and uh, I will probably never understand it. And then came the media, or I mean, I mean the, the clickbait side of media, who who did what they do best these days, which is polarizing people and, and coming up with, uh, with a headline that, uh, that is not talking about trade-offs. It talks about, you know, the supercomputer will take us all or we will go to heaven, that kind of uh, <laughs> uh, context about AI. So that's what we wanted to, to help uh, to explain uh, to people worldwide and, and to to put a giant red flag for, for policymakers and decision makers worldwide on some of the topics that need a much, much broader discussion than what's happening right now in obscure boardrooms. And, and, and thank you so much for, for that insight. It's like we could go in so many different directions and that's why I love talking to George because there, there is so much. And, and if you guys haven't uh, yet uh, seen the book, we'll talk a little bit about the book in, in, in just a few minutes. Uh, but it's called Between Brains. Uh, where can we find the book right now for those that want to go right now and go get it? It's here. Check it out. <laughs> Check it out. Yeah, that, so that's the book. It's actually on Amazon in print right now and on ebooks uh, anybody can join uh, and uh, read a few chapters online and and get the book on our website which is betweenbrains.ai 
maybe yeah, brush right. the head a little bit. <laughs> yes, between friends.ai, thank you so much about that. And I think one of the main questions that I know this audience will have, um, uh, because a lot of a lot of those that join are remote workers. Some others are in a transition to become remote workers. Some others are not remote workers. And, um, you know, we've talked in this show and the common denominator for the conversation has been, how do I make my work more fulfilling? And it doesn't feel, uh, with all due respect, that unless you are an artisan like Dr. Martins, that they make these boots that are really well-made, handmade, like that's an art. Un unless you're doing something like that, nobody wants to be putting stitches on a shoe all day long, right? Like we don't want to be a machine. Um, but now we are thinking of robotics. We're thinking about artificial intelligence machine learning and a lot of people are very afraid of what, what the impact this could have in the future jobs um, so I want to hear your perspective about about that well, how is artificial intelligence gonna threaten future jobs or how is it going to uh, benefit future jobs from from your perspective uh, so we, we try to to give a, give a balanced perspective on that. So I'm trying to do the same here on this show. Uh, so first of all, let's just start with the negative if I can. Uh, I think in the next few years, there will be a big challenge as certain waves of artificial intelligence, especially robotic process automation will become mainstream in companies. Uh, there will be a lure especially with COVID and the slump in the global economy to lay off people and not hire them back, but replace them with a certain robotic process automation. Uh, that's a lower. It doesn't necessarily have to happen, but because it can be a positive scenario that people will get their jobs back and then they will be a lot you know, more efficient in their jobs and they could do more meaningful jobs. That's a positive scenario. Uh, the issue what we have right now is that we don't really have these kinds of safeguards uh, in most of the world in place. In some countries, especially in Europe, I see a tendency that there will be some kind of protection and societal safeguards erected in the realm of, of jobs. But you know, the position here in the U.S. so far has been like, let innovation thrive, you know, do not stifle innovation. And if innovation means uh, the rapid transformation of the workforce and in the near term, uh, some negative consequences than that, then, you know, this has always been the case. That's the usual mantra. That's, uh, that's an industrial revolution uh, as, as much as the, the ones we had before. And... Um, nothing new here. So in general, and I'm trying to put this in the COVID context as well, I foresee post-COVID or in the, maybe in the more negative scenario, in the extended period of COVID, uh, a rise of AI solutions, um, a rise of uh, companies transforming themselves a lot more rapidly in the digital realm and, and looking for AI solutions that could uh, either replace or augment workers. That's, that's for happening for sure. Now, in the remote work context, I don't know if your question extended to that, but 
I think that what has started here in Silicon Valley a few weeks ago, that a number of big technology companies have announced that their workers can work indefinitely from home, that's going to start the revolution. Uh, the world of work right now is is mostly dictated. The, the new trends are dictated from, from big technology companies, I think. They have the best and the brightest and the highest paid, and the rest of the world and other sectors uh, will try to follow suit as much as they can, of course. I mean, there are certain sectors like mining when, you know, cannot work from home. But, uh, but I think that by and large, this, this will become a trend. Uh, and that will start a, a number of transformations, uh, maybe the emptying out of very expensive metropolitan areas on one hand. And on the other hand, companies will definitely need uh, or will be lured by the promise of uh, AI tools that enables them to surveil their remote workers much better. Because, you know, if you think about it, even five to 10 years ago, there was a possibility, of, a much higher possibility of, of letting people to work remotely. And in, here in Silicon Valley, it, was, it is quite the norm, I would say, that, you know, most people spend one or two days in home office, even, even pre-COVID, that was, was kind of the, the norm. But most companies actually reverse that process, or some companies have reversed the process and said, you know, come back to the office. And, uh, and there were some positive parts of that because they understood the necessity of physical interaction and, and human connection, which, which I think is, is still super important. But on the other hand, it's control, you know, the lack of uh, surveillance tools, uh, sophisticated surveillance tools. Now, AI will be able to provide these surveillance tools. Uh, so that's going to be another wave of uh, ethical and privacy uh, cases, I think, uh, how much remote workers will accept uh, regarding uh, their surveillance. That, that's a great uh, question. And even in physical areas, when people will return to, to the office, I think there will be a lot more uh, tools that are based on computer vision, which is also another subset of AI, which will basically surveil people, whether they are maintaining the physical distance, whether they are sneezing, what are their temperatures. So, so there's going to be a huge wave of surveillance coming, uh, both in the commercial and the, and the political realm, I think. It was super interesting because like, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining Colombia. And um, one of the things that has happened with COVID-19, and, and I think everyone is familiar with those um, kind of like temperature uh, pistols that they put on your head. And then also the, the heat cameras or the sensor cameras, the thermic sensor cameras. Uh, that was not common at all. Like in South America, we were like super big into like anti-surveillance, anti all of these. But if you ever visit China, one of the things that you're going to notice is that every angle of your everything, it's being <laughs> monitored or viewed in some reason, probably that there is, there is some sort of uh, technology that they are using right now to track that we just mentioned the name uh, of the country to, to, to see what we're talking about. But Um, you are completely right. And, and it almost seems that it's a wave that we cannot even 
protect ourselves against. Uh, and, and before I make my question, I, I want to remind you guys, if you have any questions, you can use the Q&A. You can write on the chat, whether you are on Zoom or Facebook. If you're watching or listening to this later, feel free to, to message either George or myself, uh, buy the book, and then, and then we can get those answers uh, for you. I know, Walter, you uh, raised your hand. I'll give you the, the, the space in a little bit. But George, my question regarding all the surveillance wave that's going to come is, is there any way for us, let's call us normal human beings, uh, to protect ourselves, to safeguard ourselves from the threats of this over-surveillance that's, that's about to come? Because I get the feeling that it's just going to be, to begin with, there's no regulation or much regulation around that. So it's going to be a huge wave that's going to take everyone by surprise. By the time we all realize, a lot of our data and information and private life is going to be out there or somewhere. Not going to say out there publicly, but it's going to be out there somewhere. Is there anything we could do today to start thinking about that, to protect ourselves against something like that? Uh, a lot of the emphasis we are putting in the book on the concept of trust. And I think that to understand our world, one of the deepest things and factors to understand about our current world is this low trust environment. Uh, the last few years have you know, clearly demonstrated, and there are lots of research papers on that, that there is a horrible loss of trust in in public institutions in certain you know, positions of authority, like journalists and politicians are the second least trusted jobs. Uh, could, could you have imagined that you know, five to 10 years ago? So I think that this low trust environment determines uh, a lot of other things, uh, how people approach new technologies. Uh, and what we see, and that's also, there's a lot of data uh, on that that we did uh, last year about how people are trusting technology and technology companies and the, you know, the governmental and the uh, company use of their data. Uh, it's in the, in the upper 70s or 80s, I think, according to the latest research I, I read from Pew that was published a few days ago, uh, the ratio of people who understand what's happening to their data is less than 10%. And, and uh, the, the percentage of people who are afraid that you know, their data has been misused by corporations that's in the 80s and uh, by, uh, by governments is in the 70s. So, so that really determines that you were absolutely right that the current regulations are very much inadequate. And I'm not just talking regulation, I'm talking about policy that is, that is broader than regulation. But what we need to see is that policy 1.0 is playing catch up with technology 5.0, uh, which means that there is a race that is very much dictated by technology companies and innovation. And the models the, by which policy operates are, you know, hundreds of years old. Now, add AI, artificial intelligence, that is, is basically developing in leaps and bounds. So there is an exponential factor that is already worsening the situation of that, that speed issue that we have between technology and policy. Uh, and 
I'm even arguing in the book that we need to put on that lens, especially for policymakers that kind of uh, what we call predictive policymaking or, or um, anticipatory policymaking uh, based on where you see the development of technology coming. So right now we are very much in reactive mode. And usually the regulation, whenever it comes, it regulates a situation that it, you know was two and a half or three years ago. That's that's uh, not really doable. So that's at the macro level. On the individual level, in a low trust uh, society, or you know, there is a large number of people who are joining these different circles of distrust. You know, the anti-vaccination movements, the tinfoil hats. Uh, that's that's very much understandable in a low trust environment that these kinds of groups exist, that these groups uh, are recruiting new members uh, much uh, with a much higher efficiency than anyone who is, is science-based because who can you trust in this environment truly? And how much information do you have to consume to have a balanced opinion uh, on, on one or another? So. I think what is very much missing from the equation, and that's also one of the arguments in the book, is that there is no public interest technology. There is no such thing. Or if it exists, in, it's like in very, very small pockets of the, of the world. There are not too many examples I can, I can give you right now, which I would consider public interest technology, but probably Wikipedia is, is a good example, or the messaging app Signal, uh, which is, you know, peer-to-peer -peer encrypted and, and is owned by a nonprofit foundation and is open source. So it meets a lot of technological criteria that, that the competitors uh, do not really have and a certain type of mindset. Go ahead, Eddie. <laughs> your definition of, what is your definition of, of public interest uh, technologies? Just for everyone else out there who doesn't, who doesn't really understand sure. that. So, so technology should become a public good. That's what I believe. Uh, right now, as long as, you know, it is a profit-making activity primarily, uh, then the interests of that profit-maker will dictate the directions that technology takes. And the lens will be that of, you know, how far can I go with my consumers without losing business? Now, when we are talking about data companies, that's even more difficult because the data that we are providing to data companies uh, is actually the fuel of artificial intelligence becoming more and more sophisticated. So what we are arguing is that there needs to be a viable, sustainable model <clears throat> that needs to be created in the public interest realm to be able to study, develop, and deploy new kinds of technologies that are serving some kind of public good. Now, public good is, can be defined broadly as like, you know, as, as I just said, that there needs to be a messaging app that is a competitor of a purely com commercial messaging app that people can use, but it's the, the direction it chooses needs to be public interest uh, defined. We need a public interest social network. Now, what, what are my current choices if I, if, you know, if I want to use a social network? Uh, and we know if, if you are you know, reading the news, what are the 
the algorithmic decisions that uh, that Facebook is making about you and what are the business interests behind. So what I'm trying to argue is that we need alternatives. Of course, you know, the commercial apps and the, the pace of innovation is unstoppable in that regard, but we need uh, viable alternatives and we need viable models to create that kind of public technology, uh, both in the realm of doing, so like developing these public interest technologies and the realm of curation of, of uh, integrating whatever exists outside the world and also the power to say no to what you know we think is against uh, the public interest and this is very interesting that you bring it up george because just yesterday for all of you guys that haven't heard uh the journalist alex berenson he uh he actually called out amazon.com because they did not allow him to publish his book about covid 19. Uh, because it had already been published through uh, through Kindle or or something like that, so uh, they 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 blocked him. To what uh, Elon Musk uh, tagged Jeff Bezos and said, "This is crazy." And then on mm -hmm. a second tweet, he writes, um, "It is time to break up Amazon." <laughs> so it is a direct uh, threat to, of course, of course, for if you guys don't know, um, Jeff Bezos is also the founder of Blue Origin, which is a direct competitor yeah. of, of a SpaceX. So there is there is a backstory in there, but at the same time, it relates back to this conversation of the monopolies that are out there and those companies that are working on technology especially artificial intelligence um, and that are making huge leaps into that direction, it could pose a threat in terms of monopoly. Like the, those that get to that first, they could easily dominate markets by, by using intelligence that, that's like, it's not, it's not even comparable to human intelligence. It's, it's not, we can compare artificial intelligence to human intelligence. Um, so I, I, I wanna hear your perspective because I, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting point. Um, like when we start like thinking about the future, how do you imagine the future where perhaps the, commer the commercial intent it's reduced? Like how could we work out a balance where, you know, monopolies are kept in check or oligopolies are kept in check, where huge billionaires are kept in check, <laughs> where, I mean, where the, the, the public, like us, um, you know, we are the ones that provide all this growth. All the economic growth is because of us. It's not because anything else. If the human, if humans decide to spend all their money on on on, I don't know, climate change, well, you will see the impact we could make. We just don't decide, and we don't know any better, anyways. But in all of these contexts, I know I've, I've mentioned a lot of things, and you could go anywhere you want, George. I know, I know you're really good at this, anyways. Um, how can we balance the future? How could, how could a balanced future look like for these companies that have access to all these uh, artificial intelligence technologies? Uh, uh, what I said about the distrustful environment, it creates a, a broader concoction that people are afraid of the present and the future and distrustful of the manufacturers and you know rulers of this present be them political or commercial but at the same time they don't have an alternative uh, and you know much of the frustration that people uh, feel every day in the digital realm 
is stemming from the fact that they don't have an alternative. They don't like what they see, but they don't have an alternative. Who's going to build that alternative? Um, I find it kind of shocking that, you know, the only real alternatives of the big social media uh, companies are very niche, very fringy, and in most cases, extremely radical uh, communities. So when you're talking about monopolies, I think it needs a lot of scrutiny of courts. Uh, you know, the term breaking up, I, I, I don't always think that that's the right, uh, right approach. It keeps coming back. Somebody's saying that, somebody's refuting it. Uh, what you need to know is that <clears throat> right now, these kinds of issues are being dealt with in the realm of lobbyists. And uh, there are, you know, hundreds or thousands of lobbies based, uh, based in Washington, D.C. and Brussels who are trying to get their, their points across with politicians. With senior politicians especially, we have a gap in, in understanding and knowledge uh, uh, of technology, especially artificial intelligence and, you know, the exponential fast-moving parts of technology that uh, some of the hearings that we have seen in the last few years uh, of, uh, of Mark Zuckerberg in, in DC or in Brussels have, have so clearly demonstrated. So that, that understanding gap uh, definitely needs to be bridged, but it can probably bridge by, by putting the focus on impact and risk instead of the technological understanding. So if, we are, if, if a policymaker or society at large is understanding the impact and the risk associated with AI, uh, we would be in a much better place. So coming back to monopolies, they are there. Uh, the way companies are thinking is, is kind of evasive of regulation, unusual. Uh, lately, I have seen a few good examples of big technology companies asking for regulation or starting some kind of self-regulation, but still their interest is, you know, to be able to do whatever they want uh, according to their interests. What I'm hoping for and what I've tried to lay down the, the framework for in the book is uh, <clears throat> different sectors, especially big technology and government, understanding uh, coming to a mutual understanding that uh, that kind of uh, joint interest is there. There, there. there needs to be some kind of concordance in realizing each other's interests because right now it's kind of a trench war. And, uh, and I really believe that, uh, that the realization of these interests as well as joint investment in these kinds of public interest technologies should be something like a cure. So much of these big technology companies have, have some kind of social impact or philanthropic arms. If these efforts could be directed to create that circle of technologies that we would define as public interest technologies as a joint action by governments and, and technology companies, that would be a huge thing. And of course, you know, startups would also find their way uh, in their equation because they would be the one once developing it. But, but I believe that what we lack so far because of that reactive mindset that we have uh, and the lack of speed we have in, in, in any kind of regulation or social movement reaction to, to the big questions of our times, uh, we are, are horribly behind and therefore we forget to ask these deep questions 
uh, usually, or we ask them much too late. <laughs> Thank you so much, George, for doing that. Um, just, just as a note, uh, Walter, I've allowed you to use your microphone. I know you might have a question. So as soon as you're ready to do that, just uh, open your microphone and I'll uh, allow you to speak. Um, so Walter, are you ready? Should I enable Walter's? No, I, I already did. So maybe okay, I have cool. to unmute. Yes, Walter, you have to unmute. I'm unmuting you too, but he should have been able to do that on his on his own. Walter, 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 Walter. <clears throat> I'm trying to unmute. I don't think it lets me unmute him. I think he has to unmute himself. Okay, Walter, we'll we'll get back to you whenever uh, you are ready. Um, but I I did have remember uh, we are talking to Dr. Josh Josh Dilesh, George Dilesh, um, expert in artificial intelligence and co-author of the book Between Brains, which you can find today on Amazon as well as on the website betweenbrains.ai. That is betweenbrains.ai. Um, so Walter, whenever you are ready, just let us know. I have one question for you, George, and. And it's related. I think I had it also in the previous interview. And a lot of the people that join us, usually very young, very young, uh, you know, 18, 20s. Uh, and, and I say 20s, is, it's early for me uh, now. <laughs> but um, a lot of them uh, might be thinking about, you know, learning more about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and all these conversations. And I wanted to ask you about the moment where Dr. George Tilesh was not a doctor. <laughs> the moment where <laughs> you were you were younger and uh, you had no idea what these things was. I, how did you get started? I, I just want to give people a sense of like when you had no experience on something as artificial intelligence, what, what were the first steps that you took to now being someone who wrote a book on artificial intelligence? What were those first steps and what approach did you take? Uh, so my life and career were kind of a puzzle. Uh, meaning it was absolutely nonlinear, I would say. And you have to get to the point of being 46, what I am right now, to understand what was happening before in a, in a broader context externally. Uh, for the younger people, I think I started out as most young people, which means I read a lot of science fiction uh, that, that you know, spoke about artificial intelligence. And uh, I think that the one that was most influential on me was, uh, was a book called Siberia from a Polish author called Stanislav Lam. And I don't know how much is he well known in the, in the Western parts of the world, but he is, he is a genius. He was a, uh, a mathematician who could write better poetry than most poets. Uh, so, so that book is basically fairy tales for adults in a robotic universe. So uh, a universe of anthropomorphized robots, and, and it's captivating. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of the best books I've ever read, so I can highly recommend this to people. So probably these undercurrents started uh, working at me, but uh, strangely enough, I'm, as a doctor, I'm a legal doctor, so I'm, I'm a lawyer originally. Uh, and uh, when I was 18 or 17, I, I didn't have any intent to go into technology at all. I actually didn't really like technology. Uh, so I think it started later. I, I approached it from the policy perspective. So one of my first jobs were with the European Commission, helping European enterprises uh, 
And that got me into innovation and technology policy. That was in the late 90s, actually. The Y2K craze, if anybody remembers that. Uh, and then, uh, you know, it went to startups, it went to Microsoft, it went to uh, big social innovation and, and technology for social impact organizations into research. So I, what I tried to do is to cover all the major sectors to have a bigger understanding of the connections and the misunderstandings between them. And I think that the, the biggest advantage of our book as well as our thinking is that kind of cross-sector and cross-industry uh, multi-stakeholder or omni-stakeholder uh, perspective that we have because one of the biggest issues with AI is that if you know if I'm recommending my book to a an average intellectual who is known in the digital world who, who sees his way in the digital world the gut reaction is that AI is too obscure for me I'm not an expert I'm not I'm, I'm not I, I won't be able to understand the book about AI uh, <clears throat> and the reason why I got into AI is that, <clears throat> first of all, so I was, uh, I was in innovation type of roles for most of my life. And uh, about five years after I moved to Silicon Valley, there was a palpable change on the ground here when, when startups uh, and VC money started flowing into AI enormously. Uh, and that was also the time when, when certain governments, especially China, uh, made the big bet on artificial intelligence to be the defining priority of their future. So something happened in 2015, 2016. I'm also part of a NASA community of, of uh, mostly of chief innovation officers, big corporations and governments. And what I, what I learned there at about that time, so 2016-ish, <clears throat> was uh, that everybody's betting on it. Every organization is bullish about the, the productivity, efficiency, and profitability boons that AI will bring. And when people are standing on a pulpit and speaking from that pulpit as organizational leaders, they are echoing that sentiment. However, when they are in private, all the ethical problems come up. When they think as citizens, as consumers, as parents, that's a very different mindset. So that, that, that's what captivated me, like starting to dig deeper into AI. And then we spent about three years actively working in the space. So supporting, you know, political leaders, corporations, startups in that realm, think tanks. I'm doing a lot of work with think tanks. Uh, and uh, yeah, so this is how people become an expert uh, without doing a machine learning PhD. <laughs> <laughs> an excellent. I, I think I have a question <laughs> that, is, uh, uh, that is more of a curiosity than a real question from Nefe Florian. He's asking, George, if, do, do you know if androids, uh, the, the, the robots, if they dream of electric ship? <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is, a, this is a well-known title for me. So everybody who who read, read science fiction has uh, has seen that. Uh, I think that was the original title of Johnny Mnemonic in, in uh, uh, so yeah, I read that. Uh, currently at the current state of uh, AI, no AI is dreaming about anything <laughs> at all, uh, at all um, because it lacks any kind of context or consciousness. 
but actually talking about consciousness, uh, what I find most fascinating, and 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 actually this is this is another reason why I got into AI because it's the most philosophical that uh, you can ever get uh, about uh, about computers. Is that uh, at the forefront of computer uh, science and AI research is these hairy questions of consciousness and artificial general intelligence and how to how to anthropomorphize artificial intelligence how how can we make it more augmented because right now what we have if you want to be a little bit cynical what we call currently artificial intelligence and machine learning is like the epitome of what we can do with data uh, for the most hardcore AI scientists, what we have right now is not even AI, but definitely not general intelligence. Uh, there are regular polls between, you know, pioneering AI experts about whether we can get to human equivalent uh, artificial intelligence, so this AGI, general intelligence level. And now it's still like, you know, 35% says in like 10, 15 years, 35% says, by 2030 or by 2050 and the rest says never so it's still out there but the reason why we wrote that book is that no matter what happens in that you know ivory tower of researchers who are who are like us fascinated intellectually about creating human equivalent or humanized artificial intelligence what's happening on the ground economically socio-economically with ai doing things in our with our daily lives, with our work, with our, you know, speakers in our bathrooms, uh, with our human connections via social media is something that is very much worthy of attention. And therefore, for us, these whole fantasies of artificial superintelligence and the long term, you know, Skynets and Terminators and uh, Hells is is of less importance to the present actually it's it's a little bit dangerous as well because if we are thinking about ai as the future and the future only then we are missing the the capacity to act in the in the moment and that's why i don't like uh, you know uh, framings like future of work because future of work is something that we are also cha always chasing but we cannot discuss because it's in the future so it, it has no relevance to the present Excellent. Thank you so much for, for your perspective, George. And Nefi saying, yes, it's a reference from Philip K. Dick's book Dick, uh, with yeah. the same name. Uh, Blade Runner, the movie is based on that book. Thank you, Nefi. Uh, for, Sorry, for yeah, comment. that was Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah. I read that book uh, about 20 years ago. So <laughs> sorry about my forgetfulness. Ex excellent. And uh, I just had a crazy thought. I was like, oh, artificial intelligence. It's it's human intelligence. I hope we're not an experiment. Well, maybe you you never know, right? Maybe the, the maybe uh, uh, other other civilizations that are much more uh, advanced than us said, you know, this this thing of doing it through computers is not going to work. Let's just go biological intelligence. Can we create biological intelligence? And then it went <laughs> it went the direction of the dinosaurs, and they're like, that's not going to that's not going to do it. Let's just let's just get rid of that experiment and put another one. Explore, anyways. That's just a thought that came to my mind. But Walter is asking an actual real question from actually smart people uh he's saying uh vr is it is it the next step i mean a lot of studies uh it was concluded that virtual reality multimedia could enhance learning by providing much more realistic images and visual features do you agree 
I don't know how much of this is artificial intelligence, but we'd love to hear your perspective, of course. It, it does, actually, because... So one of, one of my major points in the book is that, you know, in Silicon Valley lingo, we are usually talking about exponential technologies or frontier technologies, and we are putting them side by side. So AI, you know, autonomous vehicles, AR, VR, uh, biotech, these kinds of things are side by side. And I think that in my humble view, AI is the one that supersedes them all, it's the, it's the core. It's the brain behind all other technologies. So these, these other frontier technologies will merge with AI and AR, VR. Uh, I think, therefore, AI will be the core of that. And, and yes, uh, from my special, specific perspective of you know, how to use AI for public good, uh, there, I see a huge opportunity of, of using AI and VR technologies for both, uh, you know, virtual meetings of the future and education uh, <clears throat> possibilities. I mean, AI can be responsible for, you know, the personalization of the of uh, of each education course uh, out of many other uh, functions, and VR can be responsible for the palpability. Uh, and approachability of it. So I, I absolutely see a lot of uh, uh, potential here. There, there needs to be a lot more convergence happening uh, in that realm because I, I, I think that these uh, technologies still, or the people who are propagating these technologies are still thinking in these buckets or is this VR or AI and not, uh, not merged or less mm -hmm. merged. That's, yeah. the, that's my impression. Thank you so much. Uh, Loretto Messina has a question. Loretto is in New York. He says, hey, George, uh, there is a series on YouTube called The Age of AI. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but he's asking, is it worth watching? Uh, and I guess uh, the underlying question for me is, uh, outside of Between Brains, uh, are there any shows, TED Talks, uh, books that you would recommend to, to get more involved with, with this conversation? Uh, Age of AI YouTube, I think that I've seen one or two episodes of it in the beginning. I think that uh, this is the show done by the guy who, who did Iron Man, what's it, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, I think so. Loretta will correct me if I'm, if I'm failing. I think it was very interesting. The problem with me is that uh, since uh, December uh, last year, I was in writing mode and uh, mode, and, and I have this very uh, hard role, rule for myself that uh, whenever I'm writing, I'm trying to avoid influences from the outside that are very directly connected to my topic, because it it can it can create huge writer's blocks <laughs> as I've experienced in the future in in, in the past. So uh, I was, while I was finishing up the book, I was trying to, I had all the materials piled up. It just needed to be finished and, and published. So I have a little bit of a gap of a few months right now uh, to catch up on all the things that have been published uh, since when I was finishing up the book. Excellent. Uh, George, uh, we 
absolutely 100,000% appreciate you waking up so early to join <laughs> us today. We hope that this helps you, you know, start your day a little bit earlier with a, a lot of energy. I know that the guys that are always here, uh, you know, Arsene, Enrique, uh, Angie, uh, Cesar, Christopher, Juan Pablo Loreto, Mef, uh, Rael, of course, Robert Gallant. Uh, thank you guys, uh, Virginia, Walter, uh, Weston. Thank you so much, guys, for joining us today. Um, remember, um, if you know uh, of a way of helping us, it's going to be absolutely related to sharing this content, to uh, going to betweenbrains.ai, uh, buy the book, read the book, uh, put a review on Amazon. If you have read about the book and you like the book, go on Amazon, take the time to put a review there, put those five stars there. I know uh, this is super appreciated. We're going to be putting this content out once again on IGTV, LinkedIn, as well as the podcast. Um, so once you see that content as well, if you've liked what you have heard from us, please retweet repost and, and share with your communities so that we can learn more about AI together. And George, once again, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. I don't know if we have time for one more question from Loreto, um, uh, who is asking about, thank you for, oh no, actually it's just a comment. George, thank you for elucidating the social, ethical, and political implications of AI. So I think we're all grateful, uh, George, for the time that you have taken to join us today. Thank you, Eddie. And I'm just showing the book again because there was a question. So it's called Between Brains. There was a question what the title of the book is. So I'm, I'm showing it once again. Okay. And I'm going to go ahead and type down. Uh, this will be sent with the uh, show notes that we're going to start doing very soon. So it's Between Brains, Between Brains.ai. Um, so mm -hmm. you guys can go ahead uh, and go between brains.ai. George Tilesh, at the same time, if you go to We Are Torre, we're going to be putting out some information about that. You can also find me as Eddie Arrieta in all social media. If you have any questions on how to get in touch with George, how to get the book, just let us know and we'll be here to help you. So I want to thank everyone once again for joining us today. And George, I, I hope you enjoyed this as much as we all did. Absolutely. It was very much worth, uh, you know, getting up this morning. And it was the first time that I woke up my two and a half year old son and not the other way around. So <laughs> that <laughs> was a revenge time. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. George, thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you everyone you. for your time. And I'll see you tonight in the Spanish version of this show uh, on Trabajando the Future, El Futuro. Uh, and then see you on Monday as well on another episode of Fulfilling Work Life. George, have a great day. Adios todo. Bye. Ciao. Thank you for listening and remember to share, like, and comment if this content brought value to your life. You can find us on social media as We Are Torre. Explore more content at blog.torre.co. See you around.